Good to see you guys here this morning. I hope you're learning as much uh, from the book of Job as I am. Um, and it's amazing to me, just a few weeks ago, six, seven, I guess seven now, seven weeks ago, mysterious this book seemed. I knew it was profound. I knew it was great. I knew there were things in it. But it was big. It was intimidating. And I say this humbly, not out of pride, but by pouring yourself into this book, you begin to grasp what it's about. Suddenly, it's not so big. God is bigger, but the book is not so big. And, the, and, and just what's going on in these debates and these things. I hope you're, you're, uh, some of that is pouring out into you, that, that you're getting a greater understanding. And the best way to do that is to take your notes and take what you're learning here and help it and, and, and use it in reading the book of Job. Now, one of the things about this amazing book is that its story has such a depth of feeling that it stirs creativity in the hearts of God's people. And one of my goals through this study is to help you to see and savor the creativity by presenting you many of the different ways, both in music and even in books, that this story, you can learn the story in a variety of ways. Uh, that's why this week I, I made available to you, uh, if you're on our email list, the free PDF by John Piper of where he puts the whole book of Job into a poem. And it's called The Misery of Job and the Mercy of God. And it's just, it's, it's his, uh, all of his teaching put down into a poem about this book. And you may, you don't have to agree with all of his interpretations as he does it, but it's, it's really interesting and I think you would benefit. But, Today, to start off our class, I want you to watch this mu music video by one of my favorite Christian artists, Michael Card. Michael Card has a great ability to take scripture, study it, and then put it into a poetical way. But, you know, music is poetry. At the beginning of the series, I asked, have any of you uh, read any poetry lately? And it dawned on me that really we don't read as much of it, but we listen to it. Music is poetry put to to lyrics or put to music. And, and so I want you to see this. Uh, when I first got saved, uh, there was a singer by the name of Don Francisco, and he had this gift, too, of taking Bible stories and putting it to music. Yes, that's showing your age, Kim, and mine. And, uh, and, and, and Michael Card really has done, done that for another generation. And it seems like every generation we have guys that can do this. I want you to take a look at this, and it kind of brings us up to speed on where we are in the book of Job.
the first part. We'll uh, continue the, the next part as we move along. Uh, isn't that good? It's just really great. And uh, captures the story. And did a great review, didn't he, of the first two tests. Okay, the first two tests of, of losing uh, everything that he had and then receiving the sickness. But we saw last week that there was a third test. And the third test last week was losing the support of his spouse. And today we're looking at the fourth, or at least being introduced to the fourth test, and that is what I think is the hardest test of all that Job had to face, the loss of sympathy of your friends. This is not only the hardest one that he had, it's the longest one. It's going to take us now through the rest of the book to the final chapter, chapter 42. And it, it, and basically the lesson we learn from Job's friends is this, is that prosperity begats friends, but adversity proves them. Prosperity will bring us friends, but adversity is what proves them. Reminds me of the story of two men who were out hunting in the northern U.S., and suddenly one of them yelled and the other looked up to see a grizzly bear charging them. The first started to frantically put on his tennis shoes, and his friend anxiously asked, What are you doing? Don't you know that you can't outrun a grizzly bear? And his friend quickly said, I don't have to outrun the grizzly bear. I just have to outrun you. Okay? And that's kind of a, I like that story because that's really true. And it reminds us that with friends like these, what? Who needs enemies? With friends like these, who needs enemies? And we've all been there, haven't we? We've looked uh, looking at someone we thought was there for us, putting on their shoes only to run away from us and leave us in a lurch. Maybe a spouse, maybe a co-worker, maybe a f- close friend, maybe a church member, but we've all been there. But if we're honest, we've also been the one putting on the shoes, right? If we're honest, we're also the one sometimes running away from our friend in need. But here's the scary thing that we're going to learn uh, about these guys, Job's friends, is that you don't have to run away to let a friend down. You don't have to run away. Sometimes you let a friend down by staying with them and trying to care for them as a caring friend, but saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And that's when caring friends become miserable comforters. That's when caring friends become miserable comforters. And that's a hard thing to discern. And I want to introduce you to the tension of that discernment. How do I know when I'm being a caring friend? And how do I know when I'm being a miserable comforter? And you say, and, and the answer is they will tell you. But the reality is, are we prepared to hear it? Okay? Because believe me, Job tried to tell them. And he tell, told them in no uncertain terms. And they didn't hear. And they kept being caring friends who had become miserable comforters. I want you to feel the tension this morning, just like I, I hoped you did last week about Job's wife. Yes, she was a suffering spouse, but in that suffering, she foolishly became a terrible temptress to her husband instead of a wonderful helpmate. Well, these guys are caring friends, as we're going to see this morning, but they crossed that line and they moved into becoming miserable comforters. So here's my goal. Today, we're going to begin learning the difference between being a caring friend and a miserable comforter. And we may just see ourselves in these three friends. And in the process, I hope we'll learn to become better friends to our friends who are hurting. So turn your Bibles, Job chapter 2. We're at Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. So Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And in these short verses, we're introduced to Job's three friends. Let's look at it. Verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity, we just saw a song reviewing that, that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the heavens. 
They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. And what's amazing in those short verses is we get four questions that are answered for us. And it's these four four questions I want us to use as our outline today. And it's these questions. Who are Job's friends? Where do they come from? Why did they come and visit Job? And what did they do to help him? So let's take a look at this and look at the first one. Who are Job's friends? Now notice it says in verse 11, Now when Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So there they are. I want you to give a little overview of what these guys are like, introduce you to who they are. First of all, we're going to meet Eliphaz, the experienced moralist. And why I say that, let me explain. First of all, his age. He's probably the oldest of the three. He's probably the oldest of the three and uh, and could have been old enough to be Job's father. You say, why is that? Look at Job 15.10. In Job 15.10, uh, Eliphaz says this to Job, Both the gray-haired and the aged are among you, older than your father. And he's referring more than likely to himself and the other two friends. And he's saying, look, we, we, we're gray-haired and old. We're old enough to be your dad. Listen to us. Now, that would mean, since Job is probably 60 to 70 years old, these guys are probably 90 to 110 years old. Remember, this is the patriarch age. Guys, Job will live to 240, 250. So, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're still spry for their age, but they're, they're up there. And, and perhaps even twice as old as Job himself. Most likely... Each man speaks in the turn of in, in turn according to his age. So Eliphaz is first, the oldest, then Bildad, the next youngest or next oldest, and then the youngest. Um, who am I thinking of? Who did I mean? Zophar. Zophar. So let's look at this. That's the, that's his age. Well, what's his attitude? What's Eliphaz is like? Eliphaz is experienced. He's the oldest. He's the wisest, he's the most experienced. Eliphaz always speaks, he has three speeches, and he always speaks from his vast experience and years of wisdom. He says things like, I have seen it. I have observed it. I've studied it out. I've lived it. Listen to my years of experience. And because he's experienced, and because he's wiser, of the three, he starts out with the most grace the most graciousness, he starts out the kindness, kindest of the three. But as it is, if you ever met someone that's older and very wise, they're very kind, they're very gentle, very considerate, they have years that have kind of beaten them down and beaten them up, and they, they, you know, they show that compassion to others. But if you've been around such people, when you cross them, they can be some of the meanest and angriest as well. And Eliphaz does this. He starts out gracious. By the end, he lists 20 to 30 sins that Job has committed, which he has not. All right? Because you haven't been listening to me. So let me really tell you how it is. So that's that's a little bit about it. But turn your Bibles, Job chapter 4, verse 1. I just want to read little bits of their speeches that we'll study now in the weeks to come. But I just want you to kind of get a feel. So look at Job chapter 4, verse 1. Here's the first uh, the first. Words of advice other than his wife that are given to Job. And here's how Eliphaz, the experience, starts out. Job 4, verse 1. If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now... It has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Well, look at what he says in those verses. He asks permission. He's asking questions. He's not telling. He's asking. He's uh, He reminds Job of his own experience of counseling others. And he assumes the best about Job. Will not your fear of God and your confidence and your integrity lead you through this? So that's he, that's Eliphaz, the experience. Now, how does he argue? He argues like a moralist. And, and here's what I mean by that. 
He says things like, I have seen it. No human being is righteous. I have seen it. No one is as good as God. That's how he starts out. That's how he argues. Let's go back to Job 4, 6. You're right there in Job. Let's, let's read a little bit more. Notice, after he kind of graciously enters into the conversation with Job, in verse 6, here's what he says. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, whoever, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? And there it is, verse 8. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Now, there's what, there he is. He's a moralist. He's saying, look, I've studied it out. I've lived long enough. I've seen it over and over. You reap what you sow, Job. You are reaping what you sow. You must have reaped something bad because you are, or you must have sowed something bad because you are reaping bad. It's just the way it is. No human being is righteous. Drop down to verse 12. Verse 12 through 13, his experience includes, includes having visions from God. He says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. And here's what I learned from my vision, this night vision. Verse 17, Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his servants, referring to angels. And against his angels, he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. What he's saying is, Job, angels even sin. There is no human being made of the dust like man is, who is just and righteous before God. Go to chapter 5, verse 27. Go to chapter 5, verse 27. Again, we see his experience and his sense of justice and how no human being is righteous. Look at 527. Behold this. We have investigated it, and so it is. Hear it and know for yourself. Listen to my experience and my wisdom. Drop, uh, go to chapter 15, verse 17. Chapter 15, verse 17. Just dipping into these and letting you get a feel for who these guys are. Here's how he argues, Job 15, 17. I will tell you, listen to me, and what I have seen I will also declare. So do you get the idea? This guy is Eliphaz, the experienced. I'm the oldest. I'm a wisest. Listen to me and you will learn, all right, that no one is righteous before God. Now, here's his advice based on what he's experienced. Look at this advice. Very simple. Repent. Repent. Because you always reap what you sow. Repent. It's real simple, Job. I don't need to hear anything more from you. I don't have to investigate this. You are reaping horrible things. Therefore, because no one's righteous and God is holy, you have sowed something unrighteous. You have done something to deserve this. Therefore, repent. You always reap what you sow. Look back at chapter 4 again. If I could give one verse to you that sums up his whole advice in all these chapters, it's Job 4, verse 8. Look at Job 4, verse 8. This summarizes Eliphaz. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. That's where it is. And by the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. Here's his advice again in a nutshell. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. Again, he speaks from experience. But as for me, if I were you, Job, if I were sitting where you were, you're sitting, I would seek God and I would place my cause before God. And he goes down and he goes through, look at verse 15, he says, But he saves from the sword of the mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty, so the helpless have hope and the unrighteous much sh must shut its mouth. In other words, Job, shut up, repent, and it'll all be better. Look at verse 17, chapter 5, 
verse 17. Behold, how happy is the man, Job, whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Job, God is disciplining you for your sin. If you just confess it, repent it, you'd be a happy man. For he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds in his hand also yields. Okay, we could read more. There's in chapter 22, he does some if-then. Uh, in Job 22, 23, he says, If you return to the Almighty, you'll be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent, then the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Very simple. You reap what you sow. You're, you're, you're reaping it. You sowed it. Repent of it. Sow good things and you'll get good things. That's Eliphaz, the experience. Let me introduce you to the second friend. You know, you're already thinking with a friend like this, what? Who needs enemies? Okay, well, it gets worse. Bildad, the brutal traditionalist. Let me introduce you to Bildad. His age is perhaps the next oldest because he speaks after Eliphaz, but before Zophar. His attitude is very simple. Bildad the brutal. So Eliphaz is who? Eliphaz the experienced and Bildad the brutal. Okay? And let's just dip into that. Look at Job 8.1. This is how Bildad starts. Eliphaz has spoken. Job has responded to Eliphaz. It's Bildad's turn and he doesn't waste time. Look at uh, Job 8, verse 1 through 4. Then Bildad the Shuite answered, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. I love it. These guys call each other windbags all the time. Okay? Uh, just amazing. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? And then look at verse 4. I mean, he's just, what, two sentences in and he strikes at the deepest heart and hurt of Job. If your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Let me tell you why your seven sons are no longer alive. Let me tell you why your seven sons and your three daughters are not alive. It's because they were sinners. And they got exactly what they deserved because God is just. God is just. Wow. With friends like these, what? Who needs enemies? Okay. Well, now, how does he argue? He argues like a traditionalist. He doesn't argue experience he argues argues from tradition and here's what he said here here's how i summarize it for you i was told it god's always just i was told it it was passed down to me and now i'm passing it down to you and the sooner you learn it the better off you'll be and the quicker you'll get off this ash heap i was told it god is always just now notice he said it in verse 3 look at chapter 8 again does god uh, chapter 8 verse 3 does god pervert justice or does the almighty pervert what is right listen you're wondering why your kids died it was because god is just and he punishes sin look at verse 8 job 8 verse 8 please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers for we are only of yesterday and know nothing because our days on the earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words? If you would just listen to me. Because I have been taught from the elders. They have taught me. I listen to them. I teach you now. If you will listen to me, you will be wise and see that God is just. Look at Job 25. Jump ahead to Job 25.4 and listen to his argument about God's justice. Job 25.4. How then, Job 25, verse 4, how then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? So like Eliphaz, he's saying, look, we're humans. And because we're humans, we're not righteous. We're sinners. And by the way, is that true? Yeah, it's true. We're going to find that much of what these men say is true. It's not what they say. It's how they say it, and it's how they apply it to a situation in which they don't know everything. Ooh, scary, isn't it? Scary. There's a lot of heads here, and not just mine, are filled with a lot of knowledge about God's Word. But it's how we, how we dispense it that is crucial. Crucial. Now look at what he says. 
He says, "Will they? Uh, how can a man be just with God? How can he be clean? Verse 5, even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight. And you know, back then they didn't have city lights and you looked up and it was glorious and it shined and it was brilliant and it was it looked powerful and pure. And he's saying, look, compare the heavens or the glory of the heavens to the glory of God and they have no they have no then verse six, Bildad the remember I said he's Bildad the brutal. How'd you like to be sitting on the ash heap and your friend says, How much less man that maggot and the son of man that worm? You know, if you think, you know, if, if the stars and the moon have no brightness, glory, or holiness compared to God, how much more man? who is a maggot. And please, you got to understand, when they're saying these things, they're Asians. They're Easterners, right? They're from the East. You don't say anything directly to people. You talk in the third person. Let's put it out of Western. Here's what they're saying. Job, you're a maggot. You're a worm. See those worms coming out of those sores of yours? See what's going on with you? That's who you are. And that's what you deserve. You see, so a lot of times they're, they're going to talk about the wicked a lot. And you've got to understand, the wicked, like you. You know, the, the, the wicked, this happens to the wicked. This happens to the wicked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shake your head. Agree with me. Do you get it? This is why it's happening to you. Powerful stuff. See, when you read it that way, this stuff gets really interesting, doesn't it? And very convicting. Right? All right, so what's his advice? Well, very simple. Repent. Hey, wait a minute. I thought that's what the first guy said. Exactly. They're coming at it from different angles. They're different people. They have different personalities. Eliphaz, the experience. Repent. Bildad, the brutal. Here, let me shove this in you. Twist it and then tell you to repent. And here's what he says. Repent to be restored to your rightful place of prosperity. See, God is just. If you're down here on the ash heap, ash heap it's because you deserve it. Because you're a sinner. And if you would just repent, then God's just. And once you repent of your sin and turn from it, then you'll be in prosperity again. And that's your rightful place. And God's just. He'll put you there. Look at Job 8, verse 5. He just gets to it. Build Dad the Brutal. He just gets to it. Verse 5. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, like you claim to be, surely now He would rouse Himself for you and restore your righteous estate, the rightful place that the righteous belong. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Look at that last verse. Not only is a lot of what these guys say true, a lot of what they say is true about Job, but it doesn't play out like they think it should. Do you hear what he just said? Your beginning was insignificant. Job was the greatest man in the East, and at the end of this story, he's going to have double of everything that he had before. They were right. They just didn't understand that sometimes that path goes through the ash heap of suffering. Not due to sin. Wow. That kind of blows our categories, doesn't it? Of get saved, be a Christian, and live the American dream. And it'll all be good for you. Now, look at Job 8.20. Job 8.20. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support evildoers like you, Job. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed in shame. Oh, guess who gets clothed in shame? They do. They have to come to Job, and Job has to pray for them and intercede for them. It's, it's just... it's it's. Oh, little mouth, be careful what you say, right? And the tent of the wicked will be no longer. Now look at verse 21. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, like you, and this is the place of him who does not know God. Bildad the brutal. Job, you don't know God. Job, you don't know God. This is a guy who Job, uh, God has said is the godliest man on earth. And his friends have said, you don't even know him. Listen to me and you will become wise. Now, let's look at the, the next one. That's Bildad the Brutal. We're looking at Zophar, the zealous rationalist. Uh, why do I say that? Well, look at his age. He's probably the youngest of the three. He's probably the youngest of the three. But he's still older or an elder to Job. But later in the book, we're going to be introduced to a fourth person by the name of Elihu who says he's the youngest. So this guy's older 
you know, he's older than Job. He's older than this young person, Elihu's going to speak. But he's the youngest of the three old guys, old buddies. What's his attitude? Zophar is zealous. Eliphaz is what? Experienced. Bildad is what? Brutal. And Zophar is the zealous guy. He speaks with passionate reasoning that soon burns out. In fact, in the three cycles of debate, he doesn't even talk in the third one. He's a guy that gets it all. You ever had, you, ever, you know, guys like maybe you're, you or you or ladies like this. It all comes out in a rush, and then then it's over. There's nothing left. You know, old faithful has shot up, and there's nothing more to give. That's what he's like. He argues like a rationalist. And he says, I can grasp it. God knows more than anyone. Now, this is ironic. I get it. I know it. God knows more than anyone. But the implication is, except for me and these two guys. You know, in other words, God knows everything. And by the way, I know everything about God knowing everything. Easy to be that way. Look at Job 11. We'll just look at a couple verses. Job 11, 5 through 7. Job 11. Here's uh, Zophar and how he speaks. Job 11, verse 5, But would that God might speak and open his lips against you. Well, God is going to speak at the end of the story. And he's not really going to speak against Job as much as he's going to speak against these three guys. And show you secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets part of your iniquity. Now, here's what he's saying. And he's right. Wisdom, you never you never judge a matter until you hear both sides. And Job is saying, I'm innocent. I know I don't deserve this. I know I'm right with God. And he's saying, hey, I wish God would just tell you the other side. Because God would just tell you how sinful you really are. You know, Job, you're just you're looking at half the thing, what you think. You don't know what God knows about you. Look at verse seven. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? Now, what's that's great. That's true. Job can't. But who else can't? Zophar can't. Is he talking like someone that has that humility? No, because he's Zophar the zealous. So what's his advice? Repent. Are you getting the pattern? Repent. And here's what his advice is. In order to be released from your adversity. So, here you put this together, and, and in two weeks we'll, we'll examine this. When you put this together, they're all saying one complete message. Okay? Eliphaz is saying, look, repent. You always reap what you sow. Bildad comes in and says, repent. And if you do, you'll go back to your high level of prosperity. And Zophar says, yeah, if you repent, you'll get out of your adversity. It's just the, you know, the same message said several ways. All right, there's verses that we can look at. They all have these if-then statements. If you'll just do this, then God will do this. If you'll just do this, then God will do this. And all that is, you can turn it on late night, TV, on your cable, and listen to prosperity preachers say the same thing. If you do this, we'll get this. If you do this, you'll no longer be poor, you'll be rich. If you do this, you'll no longer be sick, you'll be well. If, then, reap what you sow. Well, that's who they are. Where did they come from? Let's look at number two. Where do these friends come from? First of all, uh, verse 11 tells us, They came each one from his own place, and there's these three names, Temanite, Shuite, Namathite. What's this mean? Well, like Job, all, friend, all three friends are probably wise men from the east. That's all you need to know. In fact, it should be easy to remember because it sounds like Christmas. Three wise men from the east come to see Job. Just like three wise men from the east came to see Jesus. A lot of, a lot of overlap in some of these things. Now, what does that mean? That simply means this. That these men are very wise. These aren't idiots. These aren't fools. These are experts in, in wisdom. In fact, listen to 1 Kings 4.30. Solomon, who was the wisest man on the earth, in order to compare his wisdom, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Here's what I want you to get under this. These guys were just like Job. 
They were from the east, and just like Job, they were wise, except Job was wiser. These were great men. These were wise men. These were good men. These were older men. These were men that you and I would respect, look up to, and go to counsel, go to for counsel, and they got it wrong. These are men who knew more about God, probably of, out of anybody on the planet, apart from Job, and they got it wrong. And here's, I think, why. Because reasoning about God, apart from revelation, will always lead you wrong. Reasoning about God, apart from revelation, and here's how it works. You can learn this Bible, but if you just reason about the Bible and kind of lay it aside and say, okay, I've got this all packaged, I, I, I really know how God works, and then you start running around trying to help people in that way, without really saying, let's first listen to God. Let's open the scriptures together. Let's listen to what God is saying to us. Instead of just saying, hey, I've got all the answers. I've studied it. Don't you worry about it. Let me just say right, real quick right here. Uh, that's why, you know, I, I, I try to make, I want you to look at your Bible. I want you to bring your Bible. I want you to, I want to reason together over the scriptures, not just sit here and tell you, what I've studied, I want you to read through Job. I want you to work through these things during the week. Come with your questions. In fact, I had somebody ask me a question a couple weeks ago. Say, now, are you sure? Is that is that quite right? And I said, well, no, I, I really kind of messed up on that. I need to tweak how I said. It. I didn't say it quite as accurately. You are you are right on that. Hey, I that's great. I welcome that. And it may and I knew it's like one of the, you know you have a week to prepare. Okay and. If you had a year to prepare, you still wouldn't get it all right. And sometimes when you say something, you're like, okay, I know I'm not really, you know, I didn't tweak that the way I should. And, and it's wonderful to uh, be in a body of believers that, that are going to be listening and paying attention. Not in a critical way, but in a way that says, hey, I want to learn this too. And, and I want to test what you're saying against Scripture. So, good stuff. So, why did they come to visit Job? Number three. So here's these wise men. They, why do Job's friends visit Job? Well, the answer's in, still in verse 11. Now, when his three friends heard of all his adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place in the east, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort. Now, here's the reality. Bad news travels what? Fast. And it always tra travels faster than good news. You know, Job, he could be prosperous. No one cares. Hey, Job fell. Did you hear? Okay, and it goes quick. Hey, hey, they're sick. Did you know? You know, and all of a sudden, and we'll talk more about what happens when that happens. But here's three things that they did. Number one, they came together as friends for their friend. They came together. Please don't miss this. They came together. They, 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 friends can have a, a lot of means here, but it basically means they're close friends. And, and they're intimate counselors and they're encouragers and, and, and they've come to, to help their friend. In fact, we know how close they are because it says they made an appointment together. They made an appointment together to come. So you got to understand these guys are, they're way, they live in three different places. They have to communicate. They don't have cell phones. They don't have email. They've got to take time. The news has to travel to them. They have to contact each other. And then they have to agree on, we're going to come to a certain place. And they all met with their camels and their caravans and their, their entourage. And then they had to travel to where Job was. And what's behind this is this. They had made a covenant of friendship. Remember how uh, uh, David and... Uh, David and Jonathan had made this covenant. And, and basically, these men were close friends. The four of them had made a covenant. If any one of us goes down, we're going to go and we're going to help. And one of them, you know, they got the message, man down. And they said, we got to mobilize. We got to go help because we've made a commitment of friendship. So please understand, these guys aren't total jerks. Okay, these guys aren't total idiots. They're, they're you and I. They're our friends. They were friends. Okay. What did they come to do? Came 
and comfort their suffering friend. They came to console and comfort. These two words are powerful. Console. What does that mean? Show sympathy in the New American Standard. What's it mean? It means they heard all of his adversity. They heard all that he'd gone through and they wanted to come to console. The word, it's a Hebrew word that means to shake your head and to rock your body back and forth. It means to enter into the pain of another person. It means Job is hurting, he is shaking, he is sobbing, he is racked with grief. We are going to shake and sob and weep with him. That's what it means. It means to enter into their pain. That's what console. Comfort is interesting. It means you enter in with their, uh, you identify with their broken heart, but you don't leave them brokenhearted. You try to speak to their heart and change their perspective on their suffering. So really, you get two beautiful steps to help those who are hurting. One, you identify them, you identify with their broken heart. You weep with those who weep. They came to identify. And we're going to see just how much they did identify. But to speak and change his heart about his view of his suffering. Now, this is interesting. This word change or this word to comfort is similar to the word for change of heart, the change of mind. And so you have this beautiful tension again. Well, we what's their advice to all three times? Repent, repent, change your heart, change your mind about what about your sin. Well, comfort needs to begin with a change of heart about our suffering. And just just wow. We there there's just I, I don't even know. I, I'm 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 probably in too deep. I there's just this subtle thing of what they wanted to do. And then they ended up doing it the wrong way. Okay? I'm speaking into your heart, Job, because I want to change your perspective on your suffering. I want you to see it from God's perspective. But then they they made that slight shift and assumed, we know this is because of sin. Therefore, the change that needs to be is repent of your sin. And then that got them down the wrong track. Got them down the wrong track. Let me say this. Number, why did they come? Here, here's how I summarize it. They came to honor God and help Job. That's what they thought they were doing. That's what they wanted to do. Let me say it again. They came with the right motives and for the right reason. And that's a scary thing for you and I to think about, right? Because that means we could be these guys. Right? Now, what did they do? To help Job. This will be basically the last time we see anything positive that these guys are doing. So please take heed. Okay. The first thing they do, it's all in verse 12. They do three things. Actions of grief. They, they help Job with actions of grief that recognized his great suffering. They tore their robes. Job had tore his robes. They threw ashes in the air and on their head. Job was sitting among the ashes. They're saying, Job, you're suffering. I'm going to suffer. You're sad. I'm going to be sad. And then they sat with him on the ash heap, surrounded by burning, stinking refuse. They entered into his suffering. Actions of grief that recognized. Listen, folks, we live in a technological age and electronic messages are, are vital, they're important, they're encouraging. But at the end of the day, it's human flesh, it's love with skin on it, and it's sitting where they sit, it's weeping like they weep, and it's saying, I will enter into your suffering. Powerful stuff. Secondly, expressions of sorrow. They showed expressions of sorrow that sympathized with Job's profound sadness. They raised their voices and they wept. He wept. They wept. They wailed. They cried. And then number three, the best thing they did, the wisest thing they did, suppression of words that empathized with his separation. They suppressed their words in order to empathize with his deep separation. They sat in silence. This is the wisest thing they ever did. 
It all went downhill when they opened their mouths seven days later. They sat in silence for seven days and seven nights. When you read in Scripture, uh, when great men like uh, Jacob or Saul died, the nation would mourn for seven days. Also, when Ezekiel went and saw the children of Israel in exile, he sat in silence for seven days. When you see deep sadness, when you see deep sorrow, when there is a loss due to death, some of the best things you can do is sit in silence. Now, what's interesting is this. Silence can be comforting and silence can be condemning. And we just don't know what these guys are doing. See, are they there not saying anything because they're wise and comforting? Or are they there waiting? When's this guy going to confess his sin? When is this guy going to come clean? And then after seven days, Job is going to speak and he doesn't confess. And that's when they, they pile on. We just don't know. We just don't know. Okay, so what do we learn about helping the hurting? Well, some people make enemies instead of friends because it's less trouble. Hey, it's hard to help a hurting friend. It's work. It's effortless. And in some ways, it's, it's, it's without reward. Here's what you do. Number one, friends care enough to come without being asked. Friends come, care enough to come without being asked. Listen, we can, we can hack on these guys. We can say they're miserable comforters, but understand they cared enough to come without being asked. They heard it and they came. Now, here's something you need to understand. You have to and I have to pursue suffering people, hurting. You got They hurt too much to pursue you. They hurt too much to ask for help. Now, here's the other side of that. When you're hurting, if people don't know you're hurting, they can't come and help. When they heard, they responded. That was right. But don't think that just because you're suffering, you know, the people around you, not all your friends know. You've got to tell them that you're hurting. Number two, friends respond with heartfelt hope and help. They respond with heartfelt hope and help. I like this, um, this cartoon by uh, uh, Charlie Brown, Peanuts. On one occasion, Peppermint Patty said to Marcy, I'd like to read this book, Marcy, but I'm kind of afraid. I, I had a grandfather who didn't think much of reading. Uh, uh, he always said that if you read too many books, your head would fall off. Marcy responds, you start the first chapter and I'll hold on to your head. Yeah, so that's good stuff. And that's what, in helping someone that's hurting, you just say, look, I, I'm going to hold on to you while we take this first step. And then we're going to take the second step. And I'll still be holding on. Number three, friends openly express the depth of their feelings. These guys wept, and I, I would, that's just something I was thinking about. I, I think this, that until we're really weeping with those that weep, we're not ready to say anything. Are you with me? Until we're really weeping with those who weep, we're not really to, ready to say anything. And I think if we, if, if we just practice that principle, we would be better caring friends. Okay, and then number four, friends do not let distasteful surroundings keep them away. Hey, have you, suffering people are draining, they're discouraging, that's why they're suffering. And often if they're in the hospital, things smell bad, things look bad, and you hear things, you see things, sounds, everything. These guys, hey, they sat with Job where he was sitting. So again, before we dog on these guys too much, you know, you know, we can be worse than them because we're standing out here. Hey, look at those guys on the ash heap. They're saying lousy things about God. They're mean to Job. I wouldn't do that. Hey, you're not on the ash heap with him. Okay? In a sense, they kind of earned the right to say something because they sat with him where he was. And then number five, friends understand, so they say very little. Friends understand, so they say very little. Let me end with this quote by Warren Wiersbe, who said it's best. The best way to help people who are hurting is to just be with them saying little or nothing and letting them know you care. Don't try to explain everything. Explanations never heal a broken heart. If his friends had listened to him, 
accepted his feelings and not argued with him, they would have helped him greatly. But they chose to be prosecuting attorneys instead of witnesses. And then here's how Swindoll sums it up. Sufferers attract fixers like the way roadkills attracts vultures. You see, news that you're sick, people will come and tell you every home remedy. Every My doctor told me this. He was a quack, but I'll tell you this. You know, if you're struggling in your marriage, oh, I know what that's like. I went through a divorce and I learned this and this and this. And if you will just do this and this and this, fixers. And guys, we can be fixers. We learn to be fixers at school. We go to work and we're paid to be fixers. And then we think when our kids or our spouse or our friends have problems that we can fix them too, right? And what they need is not fixing because only God can do that. Amen? Because when it comes to a human heart, you can't fix what only God can fix. But you can be a caring friend instead of a miserable comforter. So here's what I want you to do with these things. The difference is slight. I want you to take these things and I want you to memorize them. I want you to post them somewhere. I want you to pray through them. I want you to take them and use them with people who are around you who are suffering. Amen? I have learned tremendous through going through this. Because if you will open yourself up to examination, you will find that you and I are caring friends that sometimes become what? Miserable company. But God can help us to not be those things. Let's pray. Father, uh, heavy-duty stuff. Um, we see ourselves in these guys. I see myself. And uh, I just know that we have different strengths. I, I'm always str strong as a friend to speak into my friends' li lives. Uh, what I haven't been so strong in is in, in, in saying very little or waiting for that wisdom. Some of us in this room may be timid and we don't reach out, and that's wrong. We've got to go and pursue the hurting. Some of us, we say too much. Some of us, we don't say anything, and that's not, that's not totally right either. We need your wisdom, God, and we need your heart to console and comfort, to, speak, to identify with the brokenhearted, and then to speak in order to see you change that heart into the perspective of suffering that you have, that you want, knowing, Lord, that we don't know everything. But we know you. And we can bring people into your presence. We can bring people into your word. So I, I pray that that would help us. We would commit today to be caring friends that are merciful, confident, and not miserable. In Jesus' name, amen.